Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. 50 years ago this weekend, um, Nick Drake made Pink Moon. I mean, literally made Pink Moon in a weekend. In two well, two sessions, wasn't it? Two sessions. Unbelievable. At, at Sound Techniques in Chelsea, I think. Was it Church Street, Chelsea? Just off the King's Road. A former dairy. I wonder recorded that. Why was it a recording session there? And... And didn't Ireland not? I don't think they wanted the album. Did they? Well, I don't they kind of that, given up on him slightly after the first two and just I thought? Did, I don't, I'm not sure. They didn't about ask that. him for another one, you know. I think the the situation was he was still kind of on the books, and but but Joe Boyd, who was his, who had been his kind of um, protector and uh, you know, sponsor, had gone to the states, didn't he, to get a job with Warner Brothers? Yeah, so he was a little bit directionless, and he out brighter later and that hadn't done anything at all and uh and brighter later probably it probably bears the marks of of joe boyd's you know interest in trying to make it more commercial and you know strings on it and so forth and then he was just determined that he was going to do the third album completely on his own just with john wood the engineer who'd engineered the the other records and so what he did was he got it got in touch with john wood whose studio it was and arranged to go in. So they went on, I think, on the Saturday night and the Sunday night. They could only go in late at night because if somebody was in the studio during the day. So these two sessions both started at 11 o'clock at night. And and he made the whole of Pink Moon. And, you know, that was it. I think there was one and over doesn't it Dabway sound Trump. nocturnal? It does. It, I suppose, it, yes. It, it really does, does it yeah. It sounds nocturnal. There's all kinds of stories about how he got delivered to Ireland and left in reception and all that kind of stuff. But the amazing thing is, see, two things struck me, is one, that it was done so quickly. 
and and the other was that it's so short. This is yeah, less yeah, like 20, 28 minutes. No, 28, something yeah, 28 absolutely minutes. amazing. Uh, you know, so they didn't, didn't pad it out at all. And there's, I'm not complaining at all. It's yeah, I think virtually every song is two minutes. There's one that's under two minutes, I think. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, it, it made me think about what are the other what are the other albums under under 30 minutes long? So, Mark Ellen, can you can't we like to nominate one? Because there's a few quite famous ones, a few very famous ones, actually. The the first Ramones album is twenty nine minutes four of course. seconds. Long, of course, it is. Yes, which it would be, wouldn't it? That's that's no surprise at all. Seventeen songs, probably. Yeah, <laughs> a hard day's night. A hard day's night. The Beatles' masterpiece is only thirty minutes thirteen seconds. Amazing. They're absolutely packed in there. They're absolute perfect, uh, all those songs. I think Parsley, Sage, Rosemary and Time by uh, Simon and Garfunkel is round about, round about half an hour. Um, and uh, that's also an absolutely terrific record. You know, so there is a direct relationship between, uh, between kind of brevity and quality, isn't there, really, with these things? You know, they don't hang around, do they? They don't, they don't presume upon your patience. No, they don't, and you're going to make sure that the the, the the killer material is there. Although I don't think in this case he probably uh, erased anything. I think that's probably all he had. No, I think that's pretty pretty much all he had, and uh, you know they, it did it did no it made no no more commercial waves than the previous records had done. Unsurprisingly, two things that struck me about Nick Drake uh, that I was, I was reading about the other day: the the um, one total album sales. I think for all three albums, 4,000 copies. What do you mean back in the day? Yeah, back in the day. I mean, that's astonishing, thinking that quite a few people probably bought all three. What a tiny handful of people he reached at the time. Oh, absolutely. Isn't that astonishing? Yeah, and I think the same thing would have applied to loads and loads of people. I mean, because all those people are, you know, the great truth is they're all far bigger now than 50 years later. Yeah. Than they were at the time, because the universe of people interested in all kinds of things is far greater. You know, yeah. there's, more, there's more scholars, there's more, there's more people reading old Mojo articles, or you know, yeah, and, and his music's been used in in TV ads and films and stuff. Yeah. But the other thing that struck me is that somebody had written something about the fact that he very rarely used choruses because he didn't connect with the kind of folk crowd. I'd never really thought of that. No, that's before. a good point. Yeah. You see, if you look at the singer songwriters of the time. Joni Mitchell, uh, James Taylor, they tended to use choruses. Yeah, they did. And choruses are a structure uh, whereby anybody, particularly anybody who's kind of grown up listening to folk music, feels involved. They feel involved in the mechanics of the song, and they can either internally or externally sing along to it. This is so You're expecting this repetition, and you're expecting a a, a repeat of a a particular phrase or, or a melody or whatever, and that's the structure of the song. He never used he never very, did. very rarely. That's so it's just really this, interesting. That isn't it amazing? That. Because I tell you what, I was I was at college in in the kind of late sixties, early seventies, and I remember. Do you remember when Peter Paul and Mary's leaving on a jet plane? Yeah, was, was number one in the UK, I think, for about a month, wasn't it? Isn't it a Gordon Lightfoot song? I think it is. I think it's yeah. Gordon Lightfoot song. And it's got a very distinctive chorus. It's very strained, you know, melancholy song, leaving on a jet plane, don't know when I'll be back again. And uh, and we all used to gather. We're in the hall of residence, and there was only one television in the place, <laughs> black-white television, obviously. 
in the common room. With a coat hanger in the back to get a better reception. (laughs) And everybody would gather uh, for Top of the Pops for two reasons, really. One, to see what was happening in popular music. And two was to to uh, to leer at Pan's people or Legs and Co. Or yeah, Legs and Co. Yeah, whatever whatever particular you know name they went under at the time. And so it was a bunch of blokes, you know, but absolutely regular, unreconstructed. You know, they were certainly not new men in any shape or form. <laughs> these guys, you know, were just blokes <laughs> in the late sixties. And during that month, the Leaving All the Jet Plane was on. All these guys would sit there. And they 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 be the usual sort of ribald cat calls during the legs and co set and so forth, but when he came to leaving on a jet plane, a strange melancholy would settle upon the whole crowd. And when he got to the chorus, everybody would quietly go leaving on a jet plane. <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> it was like an and they're sort of shrugging at each other. Yeah. That's right. I know. Yeah, they were like, you know, they were like. Ain't life a bitch. They were yeah. like soldiers on landing craft yeah, waiting, yeah. waiting for D-Day and taking you along with, you know, we'll yeah. meet again. But that was the power. You're quite right. That was the power of the chorus. It is that, interesting, isn't it? Because he was, wrote this. What he wrote was this sort of, um, this kind of abstract poetry, really. You were never particularly sure what it was about, mostly no. about his own uh, uh, internal melancholia, I think, you know. But they, they didn't have the usual... The usual structures. The usual now's your chance. Now's your chance to join in and feel involved, <laughs> feel connected. So he lost. I mean, that was a whole audience that he never really connected with. No, that's it true. was astonishing. That's that good so point. few people liked him. Uh, uh, I found another uh, great record under half an hour, which is the great Creedence Clearwater Revival record, Green River. Oh, 20, yeah. 29 minutes, 25. Absolute perfection all the Completely. way. Completely. So, yes, if you've got any more suggestions in that line, we're always interested in hearing them. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Okay, our birthday guest is Giles Fraser. Hello, Giles. When was the birthday? Morning. How are you? Is it your your birthday today? No, my birthday was on Monday, actually. So, uh, yeah, so birthday week, I reckon. How was that occasion? Oh, you're taking the whole week off. Very good. How was that occasion marked? Uh, We went out to dinner with the family. And uh, the uh, the River Cafe, which you might know, which was lovely and expensive, but you know, yeah, I was actually sixty, so it's big birthday. That's right. great. Yes, were there any credit card? Were there any famous people in there apart from your good self? Usually, uh, no, there weren't actually. There virtually always are, but actually, it was a Monday night. I think they were, the celebs were all, you know. <laughs> Doing whatever they're, they do. They're washing Don't their go on hair a Monday. On Monday. Yeah, <laughs> having their facials. But no, the last time we had Kirsten Scott Thomas, and we had, I think Alan Yentov was in the table next to us. But he, he's permanently there. I think this is his, his office. That's the, that's the office <laughs> canteen. Uh, so you're in Barnes. Are you anywhere near Olympic Studios? Well, I tell you what. Yes, I am. And actually, we're having a party tonight at the Olympics. Oh, oh very good. Yeah. There's a lovely so, little record shop just opposite there. Tiny little record shop. Yeah, run by oh. Roger. I spend a lot of money there. Oh, do you? Good for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I said, you know, when I was very in a teenager, I never spent any money in record shops, but I spent hours there. So when he opened a record shop, I thought, right, I'm going to spend as much money as I feasibly can there, and the he's money not going that to I should have spent on my account. Yeah, yeah. So what kind of record shop is it? Is it a full service kind of thing, or is it kind of specialist collectory? 
It's uh, it's all. I think it it's broadly sixties, seventies, and eighties rock, pop, and jazz. He's got. He spends a lot of time making sure all the records that were actually recorded at the Olympic right, are on though. display. So they're always on display in the window, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, so you get the window every week. Yeah. Yeah, oh, very good. It's very a very, good. it's a very well run. He's got lots of volunteers who run it, who know all about music. I mean, it's and it's not big as you say, but it's it's a tremendous, tremendous thing to have in Barnes alongside the estate agents and coffee shops. Yes, <laughs> yeah, long may artisan bakeries. There's quite a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. something it's a shop I can happily go into. You know. Yeah. So a tradition that we've long established on this podcast, i.e., last two weeks or whatever it yeah. is, is that is that our birthday guest. Can can raise a topic or put a question either to us or to the massive or some something we'd we could all like to think about and talk about. Have you got one, John? I've got one. Go I, on. I, don't know, I hope you like it. You know, we'll see. Um, I was thinking a lot about uh, you know, poor old Charlie dying, uh, Paul McCartney publishing his book of lyrics, and thinking about, you know. Whether with all these rock gods on what I suppose has to be said is their last lap, they should be doing a little bit more to pass over the skills and tips of the trade to the upcoming generations. So I was thinking, you know, that for example, you know, there aren't as many obvious choices for headlining Glastonbury as there might be. You know, it's sort of like who could who could run a stage for two and a half hours? And I thought, well, is this the time to maybe establish some kind of almost business course run by these rock gods, you know, with mentoring? that could take, could take the form of a Harvard Business School course, whether it be virtual or face-to-face, it could be mentoring. It could even be a book, something like How to Build and Sustain a Career as a Stadium God. Right. And I was thinking about some of the courses that could be run, and I thought you guys and the Massive might have some other thoughts. But I've got a few. If I, do you want to kick off? Come on, yeah, go on, kick, kick, kick off. So I thought Mick Jagger on fitness regimes to run around a stage for three that's hours. A good, that's a good one. A yeah. week. That's a good one. Bruce Springsteen on how to structure a set for four hours. Absolutely. Yeah. Because Bruce Springsteen, really important point. Bruce Springsteen doesn't just play, play songs. He tells a story. Yeah. All those songs yeah. tell the story. They're put together in a certain way. Carry on. Go on. Okay. Uh, Mick Fleetwood on the importance of a band name and holding on to it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the, 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 the name is the single most important thing in a band's career. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the brand world, so I get that completely. The brand right. exists way above and years beyond the people behind it, don't they? Definitely, definitely. Um, you two on how to stay together for 40 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore, how to run a legal case against each other if you don't. <laughs> I'm not sure whether we'll get them both on the running the. No, I don't think time. you would. I don't think you would. Uh, Brian Eno on how to use collaborators to build a career in music. Yes. yes. Yeah. Neil Young on how to ditch collaborators as often as possible. <laughs> um, Coldplay on how to build a successful career without ever shocking people. That's true. Have they never done anything remotely controversial? No, I don't think they have. Not at all. But the most controversial thing they've done is to have a world tour that's meant to be kind of eco-friendly and they're using private jets. That's the way it goes. They sort of disappear from the world, don't they, between albums? Yeah, Yeah, they do. So after that, I thought Iggy Pop on how to build a successful career solely built on shocking people. Yes. Yeah, it's good. A bit harsh, maybe. Um, Robert Plant on how to sustain a career making a different type of album every time. Yeah. Yeah. ACDC on how to sustain a career making the same type of album every time. It all it all works. It all works. And yeah. uh, 
And what I suppose, I suppose the only thing is none of these people who've ended up doing all the things that you've so rightly identified would ever have planned to do any of them at all, would they? Totally back, agree. Back when they yeah. were 35 or 40 or whatever, you know, they they just kept going because they couldn't think of anything else to do and, and they liked the life. And that's what they've ended up just doing forever, you know. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it's extraordinary, you know. And uh, how you can pass those skills on, I do not know. I don't know if it'll be available to to later generations to do it. I don't know. You know, they, they, I often think a lot of it is to do with the, the, you know, the longevity of people like McCartney and Mick Jagger and so forth is that mm. they, they came along at a moment when fame was huge. Mm. You know, the fame yeah. you, they achieved was of a very profound kind that burned for a long, long period of time. Yeah. And I, I don't know if people who come, come along in the last 10, 15 years are famous to the same degree. Because I don't think you can be as ubiquitous nowadays as, as they could be back then. You know, we all follow our own enthusiasms nowadays, don't we? Rather Do than that, yeah. Do you think also it's about? Sorry, Mark. Go on. No, it's good to say the majority of those people who were really successful in the sixties and seventies are the ones who are still the most successful today, aren't they? Do you think I mean, there's anything about the fact, and this goes back to your seventy-one book, I think, but the sixties and seventies, and that because they had less entourages and less managers, they were much more exposed to a broader range of creative inputs and people. They met more people at random, so they they've sort of developed a greater sort of palette than maybe well, uh, someone has today. I always think the classic case of this is Led Zeppelin. Uh, you know, Led Zeppelin. If you look at the inputs into Led Zeppelin, there's everything from folk music to mm. kind of blues music. There's North African music. There's Billy Fury. There's absolutely yeah. everything is going into the pot. And then they were followed by loads of groups who just listened to Led Zeppelin. Yes. And, then, and, that's, yes. and that's just a product of specialization, isn't it? Yeah. Is that if you want to live in the world of, you know, of kind of indie music nowadays, you can live in the world of indie music and you need never deal with the mainstream at all. And the yeah. same thing applies to dance music or jazz or anything. That wasn't the same in the 50s and 60s. You heard everything, you know. Yeah. It, it, it all came via the same, uh, you know, radio request shows and all those kind mm -hmm. of things, you know, mm -hmm. where everything was played alongside everything else. So it's a very, it's a very different world. But uh, I tell you, I heard an interesting fact, which kind of keys into this. Yesterday, is that I was listening to a very good podcast, which is which was um, American podcast. It was about things that happened in 1991. All right. And the arrival of sound scan in 1991, which is the new American way of making up the charts. Mm. That prior to the arrival of SoundScan, only I think six artists had ever gone into the American album charts at number one. I think Elton John had done it twice. Mm. I think Bruce Springsteen had done it once. Michael Jackson had done it once. I can't remember. Subsequent, and so, and that was based on reporting by shops, you know, they decided mm. how many records they sold. Following SoundScan, Suddenly, 35 times a year, records that were going in straight wow. to number one. Mm. And so what it means is, it's really interesting, is that more people can become briefly famous. Yeah. They, they have that kind of level of celebrity, and then it goes away. Yeah. And what happens with the chart subsequent to 1991 is before 1991, records used to go in the chart at the bottom, go up, 
go up, go down a bit, go up again, go up, and then go to number one. Nothing does that anymore. Everything either goes in at number one or it never goes anywhere near number one at all. Yeah. So it's it's a very kind of it's a very different kind of um different kind of way of defining a success. It's yeah. all in, it's all consumed really intensely, isn't it, in that yeah. moment. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So Giles, you've got a book coming out this week. Is that well, right? It, it came out earlier this year. Right. In May. Yeah. Plug, your, book about? plug your book. Plug the book. Tell plug us what it's book. about. Okay. So there's the book. It's called right. Let's Buy. Yeah. Right. I actually think I hate I think the massive might enjoy it. Alex right. read it, he's very right. complimentary about it. So it's um so the inspiration, David, is actually some a story that you like, which is Nick Lowe's windfall with uh, the bodyguard. Oh, oh god, god, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. So, this is about so the book is set in Notting Hill in 1979 and 2017. Is this so, is it fiction? It's fiction. It's contemporary thriller oh, right. with a okay. bit of coming of age at the beginning. Yeah. So he comes up to Notting Hill, leaves school on the spur of the moment, pretty much comes up to Notting Hill and goes and lives in a squat squat with a mate. Um, they form a band, they write some songs, they do a concert, they make an EP, and then they break up, and that's it. They never go back. To, it never goes back to music. Seven years later, uh, one of the songs they wrote, "Out of the Blue," is covered on a film soundtrack, and he makes quite a lot of money. Um, rolling on to 2017, it's now 30 years later, and he's actually living in a luxury house opposite the squat in Notting Hill. He paid a lot of money for. And he's running a food delivery company, which is about to go public, a sort of Deliveroo type thing. So what people don't know is that he really needs the money because he's in massive debt. So this is absolutely crucial. His life is on the verge of collapse. And um, what happens then is that things start to go wrong in a bad way. And it all links back to what happened in the squat and the song in 1979. So So that that is your book, and it's called... Let's, let's fly. Let's fly, and we'll we'll include the link where people can can find out more about it, Thanks, and possibly right. possibly even get a hold of a copy. I'll gladly send you a copy if you want. I think the massive would enjoy it. You guys might enjoy it. There's music throughout it. Lots of references to '79 music in particular in 2017. Okay, well, look, lovely to talk to you on you. the on the week of your birthday. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So we put an appeal out for questions, as we usually do. And the one thing, the burning issue that people really, really need us to pronounce upon, Mark, because they're having great difficulty making up their own minds, is the Adele ticket prices in Hyde Park. Now, you, I know, are keen Adele fans so you've been looking into. You've been looking in. Was the best possible investment of the quantity money. of wild horses has yet because, been invented that dragged me to this occasion. I have to say, well, I got I nothing thought, against Adele. I got nothing against Adele, but my God, it's yeah, this is Hyde Park Day. This we, is the we, astonishing issue that no one's. We have, really we have made to a, keep this in mind. Yeah, this is Hyde Park, which God bless it, it's all right. But it's the most, it's the dullest park in London, isn't it's it? The it's the dullest it, park in London. It's a flat piece of ground which has no natural amphitheatre in it at all. Absolutely. Um, but it's a place they, you're normally allowed into for free. Yes. But on this, occasion, on this occasion, in fact, I should just very quickly go through the six tiers of ticket pricing. You've I mean, got you've got a very this. good, you've got a very good answer to, to 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 why these tiers would have been invented in the first place. We'll come on to that. But you know, it is really astonishing that that the cheapest ticket. And before we start, we should just bear in mind that if you think of Hyde Park, 
have I ever seen anyone? Yes, I have seen concert. One concert at Hyde Park, and it was a gorgeous sunny evening. And it was live eight, actually. And it was a gorgeous, gorgeous sunny evening, and everything was fabulous. The glass was the grass was dry, and uh, you could see, and it was just marvelous. And so you kind of think of it in the best possible light. But imagine David it rained. Imagine it rained the week before. And there are two nights. So so uh, 65,000 people each night. So if you went on the second night and it had been raining, it would have been churned up appallingly, wouldn't it? The Adele show shoes would, would, be, would be suffering dreadfully. But anyway, six tiers. The cheapest tier is, is, is 90 pounds general admission. This allows you entry through the main gates and access to an extensive range of bars, food traders and toilets. Mark, so Mark I'm going to interrupt you because I think you're underselling this slightly. Give me the exact price of the of the the basic admission. I think it's not it's ninety quid, isn't it? I thought, was a, I thought there was some, I thought there was some change in there. Oh, there, there might be. It's maybe it's ninety pound eighty five or something. It's something <laughs> like that. I think it might be actually. But yeah, yeah, it's some specific amount, isn't it? Uh, but that allows I, you in and allows you access to a range of bars. <laughs> So it means lucky old you, you can A, go to the go to the toilet and B, buy a, a massively overpriced hamburger. Super. I'm going to interrupt you again, because if you don't go in Hyde Park and if you remain in Oxford Street, yes, yeah. you can avail yourself of a wide range of bars and you can find some food outlets. And you can also go to the toilet in John Lewis. You can do all those things. <laughs> they are available in Oxford Street. Without paying ninety pounds, ninety pounds with 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 Adele warbling somewhere about three quarters of a mile away. But anyway, primary entry. The next thing is primary. Primary entry allows fans into Hyde Park through a dedicated entrance up to one hour before the general admission. Up to so one that's hour. the idea is that it gives you a one hour start to hair up to the front and try and occupy the best possible slot. So that's that gets you nearer the stage for an extra twenty one quid or this. Then there's gold two hundred and seventy three pound ninety five, where you arrive at a dedicated entrance for the Gold Circle customers. You gain entry an hour before and watch stage performances from an exclusive Gold Circle standing area. Dave, note standing. So you're yeah, standing. <laughs> you're still paying, you're paying three hundred pounds just to stand, but somewhere at least reasonably near the stage. Then there's diamond three hundred and seventy nine pound ninety five. Watch from the Diamond View stand and enjoy access to a summer garden. What is the summer garden? Um, you can see that, a little corporate um, a thing with koi carp. Do you think? What do you reckon? Picket fences, <laughs> picket more bars. There'll be a picket fence. There yeah, will four. be. There'll yeah. be a plastic, couple of parasols. Plastic flute of champagne. Well, I no. Know. But they do say there is comfortable seating. This is the first time at £379 that it's been possible to actually sit down. The VIP... The VIP Terrace is £434.95, when you can stand and watch the show in a partially covered grandstand. Partially covered. So this is the first, time, the first time we've got any indication of weatherproofing. And you uh, get in early and you can get the, uh, visit the summer garden, exactly. And the ultimate, which is, which is the most expensive lot, £579.95. This comes with an itinerary to help you plan your evening. That's the bit I do not understand. So what's that about? It's a little sheet of paper suggests, okay, what you should probably do is come in and have, uh, it, it also, you, you get a glass of sparkling wine on arrival and a complimentary bar. So you've got to absolutely drink 600 pounds worth of gin and tonic. But what, what on earth is, is this itinerary to help you plan your evening? I mean, I don't know. What, what are they so going to suggest? All these, all these additional tiers strongly suggest that if you don't avail yourself of what they're offering, 
you know, either the either the early entry or the uh, you know the partially covered bit or yeah. the itinerary. Uh, all if you don't avail yourself of any of these things, you will be one of the benighted suckers at the yeah. back, suffering the agonies of the damned, having paid ninety pounds for the privilege, because all the additional tiers are trying to get you away from the privations that they've foisted upon yeah. the overwhelming majority of the customers yeah. who don't have those those escape clauses of varying kinds and are going to be treated like people are always treated at major big music gigs, cattle. like cattle, yeah. in a way that football fans wouldn't put up with anymore and are not expected to put up with anymore. But music fans seem to put up with it. And actually, quite quite sensible music fans. I mean, these are, I'm not suggesting that adults are bright and kids are not, but these are not teenagers who are going to no. buy these tickets, are they? But these, all these are your neighbors. remind you of just what a, what a, what a miserable lot you accept. <laughs> don't you think, Absolutely. oh, my God. It, you know, you Couldn't be more basic. You know, and I think the contrast with football is quite instructive, you know, that you can you can get a Wembley and you can pay for the the kind of hospitality package and have the nice meal beforehand and all that. And uh, But you're not going to get in there any earlier than anybody who's just paid the basics, sum of money. You're not going to see any more than, than anybody who's paid the basic ticket price. And that's the way it should be, whereas this is. This is very different. How long it, it will and, go on, I do not know. No, I suppose also, it'll, go, it'll go on this long, as long as performers... Most people are prepared to, to, to pay for it. And well, also, there's one more thing is that she's paying, isn't she's playing, rather, to these VIP stands right at the front. Yes. So that's the worst and least energising audience to play to if you're the performer, because they're not the people who stood there queuing and are desperately keen to see you there. They're the people who paid £600 and they are the least motivated when it comes to applauding and uh, expressing their delight because they've already paid a load of money. Do you know you what I mean? And they've, and they've hammered a complimentary bar. So dismal. But, I mean, it works, as, as you were saying, we were talking about this yesterday, it works because she will have gone in there and saying, this is the amount of money I want. And the promoter would have thought, how can I construct a system whereby I can extract that amount of money from the, the 65,000 people? Yeah, and, and, and whoever the promoter is, well, don't blame it on the promoter. You know, they, these ticket prices are what they are because acts want the amount of money that they want. Yeah. And they want the amount of money because they've got private jets and, you know, multiple yeah. houses and families and God knows that, you know, that, that that's what they expect. And also record sales have gone and so forth. And so they're going to make it all out of playing live, but they don't want to play live too much. So this is the way to do it. That's the way it works. But that anyway, is an eye-watering sum, isn't it? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, be our guest. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> Enjoy. Literally, fill your boots. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, other questions from the massive or, or points. Stuart Robin says, this is a recommend more than anything. If you're getting Disney Plus for the Beatles documentary, Get Back, which is uh, coming out in a few weeks' time, it says stick around for the Steve Martin, uh, Martin Short thing, Only Murders in the Building, which everybody says is terrific and uh, I must get around to must get around to seeing it. Robert Reed says, "I rightly claim this me. I rightly claim that outtakes are normally weaker than the originals, 
But Dylan's earlier 80s album outtakes are the opposite. It's called Springtime in New York, isn't it? This um, yes. latest thing for the bootleg series. I've heard bits of it. He says these are far better than the originals. Would you Would you concur, Mark? God, I don't know. That's too, I, 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 I went through phases of thinking some of the outtakes are better than the originals, but but ultimately, I, I think you you you're you're deluding yourself. You know, I mean, Dylan's case, he the interesting things was he put out records that were that were unavailable, weren't they? Blind William Tell, series of dreams, which yeah, recorded for Oh Mercy, and that was the real excitement for me. Is you got whole songs. I don't think ultimately I've ever preferred an outtake to the original. But there were things that was a version of Visions of Johanna, which had an additional line in it. He examines the Nightingale's code. And that became a kind of very cool thing for people oh, in the really? deep end who knew this extra line that, uh, that had been originally in there. But uh, no, what's astonishing is that he never put out songs as good as Blind Willie Mitchell, which is a work of absolute genius. Yeah. Didn't eventually come out of the bootleg series. And yeah. series of dreams as well. It's really, really good, yeah. Stuart Penny wants our thoughts on Steve Van theory in his memoir, which I've not read. The rock music started in 1965 with Like a Rolling Stone. Good. That's, I like an arbitrary, <laughs> arbitrary, you know, kind of division of time. I'm all, I'm all for this kind of yes, thing. Yes, that's Actually, good. Started in 1965 with Like a Rolling Stone, fair, and ended with Nirvana in 1991, 26 years later. I would say fair. That's really plausible. Uh, I've not I've not read the book, but I'm That's sure really Steve Manzak knows whereof he speaks. You could argue that you really got me, which came out I think in 1964 might have been a with uh, the first rock song. I don't know. That's a possibility. But the thing about like a Rolling Stone is it's kind of here are my thoughts, isn't it? It's yeah. the it's the content of the song. This is this is the content of my soul. Yeah. In the way that re you really got me sort of wasn't, you know. That's like true. a Rolling Stone is a bit of a division in that sense. And, uh, but and Nirvana is a good place to end. That's true. Because after that, you kind of look at things and you think, you think I've so I was watching somebody the other day, was it Biffy Clyro on the Jules Holland show? I was thinking, this is really, really good, but you can see all sorts of rock bands echoed in this performance, you know. So Nirvana might have been the last time somebody did something what appeared to be completely original. It's really good. I love those kind of theories. You're right. Somebody good. else was asking, "What's the best uh, uh, the best case of a guest being introduced uh, at a gig that you've ever seen?" I'm trying to think. Oh God, I've got a good one. I've seen the oddest oh. ones. I seem to remember. It's only just come back to me. I saw Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention in 1971 at the Coliseum. I think it was in uh, in uh, St Martin's Lane, and that was in the evenings when. Do you remember those days? They used to have rock and roll gigs. Used to be. On Sunday nights, London theatres were dark. And so you would very often have rock and roll gigs in those theatres on the Sunday night. And I saw Frank Zampa and the Mothers of Invention with Flo and Eddie and Ian Underwood and oh, Ainsley, Ainsley Dunbar. And at some stage, on came a guy started jamming with them. And Frank Zampa at the end of the number says, Stephen Stills. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Just kind of. He didn't introduce him when he came on. He just kind of referred to him as he'd finished, as That's I seem really to, to recall. What was your case? Oh, mine was a very kind of very arch and very deliberate attempt to produce the most absurd collision at the time. But it kind of worked, actually, which was Shams. I was reviewing for the NME, uh, the Reading Festival in 1979, and Shams 69 brought on Steve Hillage in a one-piece <laughs> bright orange zip-up <laughs> jumpsuit. I can remember it. And that seemed absolutely hilarious because they could, for, for, if the kids are united, 
could not have been a greater contrast. It's quite funny, I thought. I think the best one, I, I never I didn't see it in person, but I, I've seen it on YouTube numerous times. And uh, it took place in the in, at the place that we've been talking about regarding Adele, which was when Bruce Springsteen played uh, Hyde Park. Paul McCartney came on, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Didn't they, did I, the curfew? I, did they have to be stopped in the middle of the had to stop. But, yeah. he, but, but he did, I saw standing there. And the beautiful thing about that was uh, Bruce Springsteen and all his band looked as if they couldn't be more, more thrilled. Starstruck. Yeah, absolutely. At the idea that they had. And, of course, you can only do that with Paul McCartney. There's, there's nobody else yeah. you can do that with. It doesn't even work with Keith Richards, does it? No. It doesn't, as, it doesn't work with Bob Dylan because he wouldn't play the right song or whatever. Whereas, you know, Paul McCartney is going to come on and, and make it a wonderful moment for the E Street Band never mind for the crowd. And I think it kind Completely. of has to be like that, doesn't and it? the E Street Band were that generation who first saw them on the Ed Sullivan show. And McCartney's been doing all these things on Radio 4, which have been really good, actually, yeah. with John Wilson, and talking about all the people, all the people who've said to him over the years, members of the band and Tom Petty and the Birds and all that, who have talked about seeing him on the uh, on the Ed Sullivan show and how it changed their lives. It must have been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing in the, in the McCartney book, the thing that keeps coming up is the amount of stuff he remembers from his childhood. It's as if his childhood was real life, which it obviously was. And then there was the Beatles. And that was no longer real life. You know, that was just that was just a mad dream that's been going on ever since. Um, but then but, but So those but when, memories are even more precious, aren't they? Absolutely. It's it's a, it's a vanished land. You know, of, of kind of aunties and Wilfred Pickles. And, oh, and, there's you know, a lovely no. bit in in the in the, this this uh, cultural life with John Wilson when he talks about how his dad worked at the Hippodrome in Liverpool. And I don't know if I knew that. He went this is in the 1950s. He, he did, it was a follow spot operator, in an evening uh, job, and he would come back in the intervals and sing, rush back to the piano, and sing to McCartney and his brother and, and the aunties, you know, sing the, the music hall songs that he just heard. It's absolutely amazing. And he had this wonderful memory of, of hearing Ken Dodd on the radio. And he said the most exciting thing would be that Ken Dodd would come on and you knew he was on stage and suddenly there'd be a ripple, there'd be a roar of, of applause and there'd be laughter. And you'd think, what, it, what was he it done? He'd done? And he said that was the magic that they used on the moment of when Billy Spears comes on stage, as it were, and Sergeant Pepper, exactly the same thing happens. Whether or not, whether or not he's 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 factored in those kind of connections after the event, I don't really know. But there's, there's lovely stuff as well when he's talking about it on the uh, in the Ten Song series, where he talks about uh, Penny Lane being partly inspired by Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas, or the idea of those little village characters, you know. Mm. And had um, a teacher at school who taught him the, the French symbolist Alfred Jarry. Now he learned about pataphysics, which is why he put pataphysical into Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Whether or not that's just uh, him rearranging things after the event or not, I don't know. But he, as you say, his his memory of childhood is absolutely fantastic. It's brilliant. So, well, that's it for this uh, this week. Uh, what have we got coming up? Uh, what have we? What might people have missed in the last week or so? I don't know. I've been away. We've announced our first, our return to uh, live, live presentation. Live back, back in the open, uh, open air. Uh, well, not, not, the in, air. not in the open not air. Not the open air. No, no. Back uh, in the outside world. At the West Hampstead Arts yeah. uh, Arts Club on uh, November the twenty second. I think that's right, Mark, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. We got we got John Hillsley of Dire States 
uh, Dire Straits talking about his book, his life in Dire Straits, and further further guests to be announced in due course. And details of that will be winging their way to you as soon as possible. Don't forget, we very much appreciate you being a Patreon supporter. Uh, like Giles, it was our, our birthday guest earlier on in this podcast. And if you'd like to be a Patreon supporter, go to patreon.com. Word in your ear. We'll see you next week. See you then. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.